Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Again, verses 11 through 14. Galatians 2, beginning with verse 11. We are studying through the book of Galatians. This is our 13th. Fitting that it comes after Friday the 13th. And uh, this week we will, for the final time, study this section of verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2. We have been looking at the conflict between two apostles, two titans of the early church, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And the conflict is over whether Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be worthy of the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it was right that the Jews in Antioch and all the churches of Galatia would withhold themselves from the Gentiles, treating the Gentiles as if they were second-class citizens within the body of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is fighting, and that is the right word to use, fighting for the full inclusion of the Gentiles without circumcision. And he has gone through in the section that came before and he's rehearsed the battle as it's been fought, not just there at that time, but in previous years. Now here in our text, he recounts the most intense moment of that battle, I believe, although the council in Jerusalem would have given it some a run for its money. But here you have these two leaders of the early church, these two top office holders, apostles, in conflict with each other. And they went man to man, and Paul, the Bible tells us, rebuked Peter to his face. Always keep in mind as we talk about Peter, and think of Paul rebuking him, that Peter is the one that the Roman Catholic Church refers to as the first pope. And so there's always been a strong tradition, for those of you who may not have been here last week, there's been a strong tradition among Bible interpreters in the Roman Catholic Church to deny that this was really a conflict between Peter and Paul. And what they say is it was a morality play. It was sort of a public drama that was done in order to uh, make a point to the church but that Peter and Paul were in perfect agreement, but they just acted like they weren't. And this is a strong stream within Roman Catholic interpretation. And so you see uh, that it has always been scandalous to a sinful man that God chooses to humiliate leaders. You think of David and how much many people in his kingdom would have thought, look, all right, he committed adultery. Yes, he murdered. But does this, do we have to air our dirty laundry in public? You know, how, how can we look up to him as a leader if he's guilty of this kind of thing? You know, God, deal with him in private, but let us have our king. And this is our temptation. Our temptation is to transfer our allegiance from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to a man. And so the Catholic Church looks at Peter and says, this can't be true. We can't have the, pope, the first pope, the top pope, being rebuked. And so well, let's deal with this. And so the, the way to deal with it is that they, they, they change it and they say that this was just a play acting. And Chrysostom held to this, St. Jerome, who gave us the Vulgate, held to this. It's a strong stream. This is not true, though. They did publicly oppose one another, in public. And as we go through the language, you'll see this is not play-acting. So what happens? In verse 11, we see, When Cephas came to Antioch, You know, I didn't read the text, did I? Did I? Let's read the text. 
Galatians 2, beginning with verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And this is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Now, if you have not been here the last few weeks, the word Cephas is just another name for Peter. This is the Apostle Peter um, that we're referring to, the one that uh, always comes first in the list of the disciples during the time of our Lord's earthly ministry. Now, to say, as we see here, if you look down with me at verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because what? Because he stood what? He stood condemned. All right? To say, as the Apostle Paul does here, that the Apostle Peter stood condemned isn't any light thing. It's not simply a matter of a difference of opinion. Had it been, Paul and Peter could have gone their separate ways as they did when they differed over John Mark. When Barnabas and Paul disagreed over John Mark, they went their separate ways. There was not a permanent division. They ended up working together later. It was not a matter where the future of the church was at stake. Had it been such a merely personal issue, they could have taken some time off from one another, breathed deeply, and waited for the time of restoration when each of them came to a deeper understanding and then they would be able to bury the hatchet and be restored to full unity together. But this was a far more serious disagreement. Paul and Peter were here having a disagreement that led the Apostle Paul to say not only that he disagreed with the Apostle Peter, but that he had disagreed with Peter because Peter what? Because Peter stood condemned. And what is the meaning of the word condemned? Well, this word condemned is a severe word not to be tossed out lightly. It's not a word used simply to mean that Peter was being condemned by Paul. Rather, here we have a construction that is used to indicate that Peter stands condemned under God. It's, it's judicial language where a man would stand before the bench, all right, the judge, and the judge would say, you are guilty. You are condemned. I condemn your actions. You hear sometimes these judges, you see them written up in the paper where at the end of a trial, they give a word to uh, the defendant and the defendant is condemned by the judge. You know, there has been no remorse evident in this courtroom during the time of this trial. You are a man whose conscience is seared. You are a man who is wicked. The only fit thing for you is execution or is lifelong imprisonment or you have such egregious wickedness that you have done that you will be condemned to, what, 20 years in prison or something. And so here, the Apostle Peter is standing before the throne room of God and the Apostle Paul, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, sees that standing before the Holy God, Peter, this first pope, Peter is condemned before God. And it is only because of his knowledge of the condemnation before God that Paul would ever have the audacity to publicly oppose him, not just to oppose him privately, but in front of the whole church to oppose him. It's Paul's work to issue God's judicial judgment against Peter, that Peter was under God's condemnation for his 
two-faced, hypocritical actions towards the Gentiles. Eating with them sometimes, but when the Jews arrived from James in Jerusalem, avoiding eating with them and returning to his own people. All right. Had the matter been a personal slight, Paul would have forgiven as he himself had been forgiven by the Lord Jesus. Paul would have allowed love to cover a multitude of sins. But since Peter's actions are not personal, either against Paul himself, because after all, he is circumcised and he's a Jew, so Peter would have kept eating with Paul. All right? And since they weren't really actions against the Gentiles, I mean, by extension they were, but they weren't actions against the Gentiles that Peter had shut out in the cold, but rather they were actions against the Lord Jesus who had broken down the dividing wall between the Gentiles and the Jews. In other words, what was it at stake? It was the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that was at stake in this disagreement. Yeah, there were Jews involved, there were Gentiles. Yes, there were persons involved, there were men involved. There was Peter, there was Paul, there was Barnabas. But what was really at stake was what? The work of Jesus Christ. Prior, in verse 12, to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Now, it would be a mistake, but it would be very easy for us to look at this as just a form of junior high and high school cliquishness, right? Uh, Sometimes I think that my whole life is just a living out of the, the horrors of junior high school. <laughs> and my wife will, will agree with that sometimes. She sometimes that makes a very wise comment to me about uh, my behavior. And we're not talking about playing four square either. <laughs> well, we all know the routine from junior high and high school. There are certain kids that come to the youth group Certain kids that we ride the bus with on the way to and from school each day that during youth group and during riding the bus to and from school we're very happy to associate with. Or we might consider it a duty. And so there's not the slightest evidence to anybody watching that we don't just love them. That they aren't our bosom buddies, our best friends, right? But then you get into the hallway of Elgin High School or Ellis Junior High School where I went to school and boy, you don't know them. As far as you're concerned, they aren't even on the planet Mars. Why? Because they're not cool at school. Or because maybe you're not cool and they avoid you. So you can, in one context, have no better choice. Well, you know, uh, and I could name the names, but I better not. But, you know, so-and-so at youth group and, and on the bus, he's my friend. But when I get to school, I have, I have larger fish to fry. And so we could look at this conflict between uh, Paul and Peter. We could look at Peter holding himself aloof from the Jews. And we could say, hey, he's got larger fish to fry. These dudes have come up from Jerusalem and uh, he wants to impress them. And that's all that's really at stake. But that's nasty. I mean, and you know, if you stop and think about it, what was at the heart of this? And then we do our you know, 20th century American trip of trotting out racism. And we can all repent of that. You know, this was racism. Well, it was, but it wasn't. Because racism is actually a pretty trivial thing. Racism is only one people group looking down their nose at another. But that's trivial compared to attacking the work of Jesus Christ. Every, every group, every people group that's ever existed is racist. 
Now, that doesn't mean it isn't a sin. It certainly is a sin. And it is condemned by this action, but it is a tiny part of what is condemned in this action. What's really at stake is the work of Christ on the cross. And don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't trot out your little 20th century American repenting of racism, which, of course, only extends to a few races we repent of our racism against, and it certainly doesn't extend to repenting of our educationalism and our classism, which we're all willing to be completely blind to. Don't lose this. What's at stake here is the completed work of Jesus Christ. This is not a little clique that's fighting against another clique. Yeah, there was racism between the Jews and Gentiles. But what's at stake is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was not just a case of social climbing on the part of Peter. Peter really didn't have a need to social climb, you know. When you're the top apostle, the first pope, I say, tongue-in-cheek, you don't have to prove to people that uh, you can be as good as they are. You're the best. So look at this for what it is. Now, why would Peter be resisted so directly by Paul? Why wouldn't Paul simply take him aside and explain things to him? Isn't that what's needed? You know, couldn't Paul have just taken him into a little room and said, Peter, do you realize how this looks to people? You know, was the issue just that Peter didn't get it? You know, he didn't realize how it would look to people. Is that the issue? I mean, couldn't it have been the issue? Doesn't 1 Corinthians 13 tell us that love always expects the best? Uh, doesn't Jesus say if you're going to correct somebody, first you know, remove the moat from your own eye or the beam from your own eye? Doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest ye be judged? In other words, aren't all these texts being violated by the behavior of the Apostle Paul here? You know, go private, Paul. Take him, don't, you know, when you, when you offend a man, then you're never going to be able to correct him because his pride and his arrogance are going to come out and he's never going to be open to your rebuke again. Take him privately, Paul. So why didn't Paul take him privately? Well, first of all, I think he did. I think there were probably some attempts made privately to deal with this. But it's clear Peter is not going to give in. And it's also clear that Peter not only doesn't give in and holding himself aloof from this other group, but it, it's also clear that he makes his sin their door. All right? Because what? It says that the rest of them went with him in this. And then it says even Barnabas, even beloved Barnabas went with him. Now, on what basis can we say that this was not simply confusion on the part of the Apostle Peter? On what basis is this not simply confusion? Now, bear with me. This is going to be difficult and we're going to fly, but turn to Acts 10. Enter into a story. The book of Acts, the 10th chapter, tells us this story. It's the story of the man, the Gentile, the uncircumcised Gentile named Cornelius. And there in verse 1 we read the beginning of the story. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So he's a God-fearer. In other words, he's not circumcised. That's what that means. 
He is a Gentile who's pious, who gives alms to the Jews, who observes many aspects of the true religion, but he's not circumcised and he's not a Jew. All right. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision, in a vision, an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city... Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and the birds of the air. Now, what's going on here? This sheet is coming down to this hungry man on the rooftop. It's coming down to him... When he's, when he's very hungry and it's filled with unclean animals. In other words, it is filled with all of the symbols of the distinction God made all through the Old Testament between what was clean and what was unclean. And circumcision is another distinction between clean and unclean. And here is the food that is unclean. It's coming down on a sheet, he's hungry, and he wants to eat it, Right? There were in it, verse 12, all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Unclean animals. Distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles in ceremonial law in what they ate. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. He's a good Jew. Again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind, what do you have? You have the removal of the Old Covenant. You have in front of Peter the same thing that happened in the temple when our Lord gave up the ghost, which was what? It was that the dividing wall between the Holy of Holies and outside was, was, was ripped down the center. The veil of the temple was rent in twain. And here it happens again. God is making it clear that he has made these things clean and that they're no longer to be considered unholy. It's a change in dispensation. It is a change in the covenant. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without what? Without misgivings. For I have sent them myself. Why would he have misgivings? Because he's going to hang out with unclean Gentiles. That's why he'd have misgivings. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, immediately he knows he's a Gentile. All right. 
well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. You know, how does a Jew go to a Gentile house? He doesn't do it. It's unclean. That's the essence of the Jewish religion. And so he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now, this is terra incognito. This is something that they have no idea what they're getting into. Some of the brethren go with him. Hey, we're going to go along and see what this is about. It seems as if God's given a vision to Peter telling him that he's to go to a Gentile house and that he is to go in the Gentile. In fact, that he's to stay there, that he's to eat there. And so what? On the following day, he entered Caesarea, and our Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives. So it's a house filled with Gentiles. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled, and he said to them, Now, watch this carefully. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. You know what's happening as I read this, don't you? All of you are coming to see the depth of Peter's sin against the Christians in the church in Antioch. This is the same man. There's no lack of clarity here. And so we go on. So I ask for what reason you've sent me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, not kind at all, he received the Great Commission. Go you into all the world to preach the gospel. He was under orders. He was a man that was under orders. There's absolutely no reason to think he was kind. God said, what I have made clean, you are not to call unclean. All right. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, watch this, Peter said, I most certainly, what? Understand? I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show what? Partiality? But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him? I think this would be exhibit A in a trial. But he was holding himself aloof. I now understand that God is not one to show partiality, but he was holding himself aloof. And he caused others to walk with him in his what? What is it called? What does the text call his actions in Antioch? Hypocrisy. Now, where does the word hypocrisy come from? Any of you in drama or theater? Huh? Where does the word hypocrisy come from? It comes from ancient Greek. And it's the word used in Greek drama to refer to the person who plays the part of someone he's not. All right? Ben Kingsley, 
Mahatma Gandhi. He's a hypocrite. But we pay him to do it. Except in this case, Peter isn't being honest. He doesn't have a marquee up. And he doesn't write down Peter playing the part of an Old Testament Jew denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the difference between a good and a bad hypocrite. It's what Kierkegaard says. He says, the theater and movies are honest. (laughs) Think about that. And so he says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now, He goes through the gospel, but look down at verse 45. It says, verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Why? Why were they amazed? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit? No. Because of the broadness of the Holy Spirit. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Goyim. The Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, and this is exhibit B. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we read Jews did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And the implication is he did. So, what's going on here? It's very clear that the Apostle Peter knows exactly what God has commanded. The the Apostle Peter knows exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. There's no question about it. He's broken down the dividing wall. What God has declared clean, he is not to declare unclean. And so he's gone. He's even taken other Jews with him. They go into a Gentile house loaded with uncircumcised. They preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes down on the Gentiles and he says, these people have to be baptized because the Holy Spirit has spoken. Then he goes off to Antioch and he hangs out with Gentiles. Most natural thing in the world. I now realize that God does not show favoritism, right? And then some old timers, you know, the old guard, the charter members of the church, okay, They come up from Jerusalem, those of James, and they show up at the church, and all of a sudden, what does the Bible say about Peter? It says Peter was what? It says Peter was afraid of the circumcision. Now again, what is it that's scary? You know, what is he afraid of? Think of Peter. This was the guy who wanted to put up the tents after the transfiguration. This is the guy who, uh, no matter what, he was the the impetuous, the the one who took initiative. This is the guy who saw Jesus walking and wanted to say, I want to do that too. All right? And he gets out of the boat and actually walks on water for a little ways. But again, there, all of a sudden, he gives into fear. And that's what he does here. He gives into fear. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. Because there is, a, there, is, there is a huge, huge uh, sermon in this. I want you to stop for a second. I want, I want you to think. Do you fear the little lady who sits next to you? Those of you who are married, 
or serious about a woman. Do you fear the little lady who sits next to you? Now, why do I say little? I'm not meaning to demean women. But do you fear her? Do you fear the approval of the old guard of this church or some other church? Do you fear that you will lose that approval? Do you fear the disapproval of your grandmother and your grandfather? Do you fear the disapproval of the guys that work the line with you? Do you fear the disapproval of the members of the frat or sorority? Do you fear what the newspaper in Bloomington says about you or about us? What do you fear? Now, I'm only asking that to ask the next question, which is, what sin has that fear caused you to give in to? It is no secret that I constantly emphasize the need today for Christians to have courage. I emphasize it constantly, and the reason I emphasize it is that I think it's almost, you've got the love of Jesus Christ and his completed work, and then you have obedience to him which flows from love. But you can't obey Jesus Christ, and you can't obey the word of God, You can't live a life that's pleasing to God if you live a life that is the fear of man. And this is why I emphasize courage all the time. Because if you're living a life where you're always worried about what people think about you, you will never please God. And so if you look at me and you think, well, Tim has courage, he's always talking about courage, and so Tim really is always on a cult of himself. You're fools. You're absolute fools. You've missed the whole point. The whole point is you cannot please God if you fear man. And the first character trait that parents need to instill in their children after their children have confessed faith in Jesus Christ is the ability to not fear a man, to have courage, and all courage is, and you've heard me say this a hundred times, is courage is knowing who you should fear. And that's God. So if you like courage because it's a positive trip, and you don't like fearing God because that's Old Testament, fine, I'll put it in the language you like. Have courage. But what I'm really saying is, you, every one of you have two choices. You can fear man or you can fear God. You cannot fear both man and God. You will either live for man or you will live for God. You will either live to please the little young lady, the lovely little lady sitting in the pew next to you, or your grandmother, your grandfather, the sorority sisters or the fraternity brothers, the union members or the line workers or whoever it is you fear, you're either going to live for them and you will succeed in pleasing them. And by doing that, you will turn your back on God. You see, that's what's at stake in your life. Right now, you, where you're sitting, are living a life either that you are pleasing God or you're pleasing man. Almost none of you are independent-willed human beings. Guess what? There aren't many of them. And even the ones that claim that they are independent are actually just slaves to their lust. Think of Jean-Paul Sartre. The great existentialist, right? And then he dies, and what do you find out about the pervert? 
His life was a life of lust. That was all. Existentialist. Such a brave man. Such courage. You know, and you think of all these movie actors. Isn't it twisted that I want to be like Bruce Willis? <laughs> you know, die hard. Boy, I wish I could have a fight like that, you know. And, and then I could show him I'm a man, <laughs> you know. Fat man, but a man, you know. <laughs> it's so twisted. We live a life of fear that people won't see us as being quite who we think we are. And so what do we do? We try to be like Bruce Willis, or we try to be like Mel Gibson, or we try to be like Mike, or Michael, or whatever you call him, or we try to be like Beckham, to bend it like Beckham, or, and we have gods and gods and gods and gods and gods, and our greatest fear, phobia, that's what the Greek word is, phobia, all right? Our greatest phobia is that people will not perceive us as we see ourselves as. So here is Peter, and he sees himself as being a stalwart bastion of the church, a pillar of the church, right? And the minute these people come up, these scary people, all right, these old guards, you know, he all of a sudden becomes a hypocrite, and he acts entirely contrary to what the direct revelation of God gave him. And not only that, but let's add, just for the sake of piling on, that he hurt those Gentiles. You know what that is. You know what it is to be the outsider, the person that the minute you get to school, your friend doesn't know you anymore. You know what it is to be black or to be Asian in an American culture and not to be able to speak the language. All right? And so it's not just God, but it's also Complete lack of love for other Christians. Why? Because he was so afraid. You know, remember when he was in the courtyard and Jesus was being tried? You remember how courageous he was then? Did he fear God? No, he didn't. Who did he fear? A young slave girl. By God, I tell you, I was not involved with this man, Jesus. And then the cock crows. Here is our first pope. And so I ask you, who do you fear? Everybody fears. You live your life fear. You fear death. So you're going to fear death until you die, and then you're going to die eternally. It was real effective, wasn't it? Who do you fear? You know, I hate dealing constantly with the lie that's come into the Christian church today that Christians no longer have to fear God. I hate it with a passion. You live by fear. Don't lie to me. And the only question is, who you fear? And listen, I grew up with a good dad. Okay? And I never thought that because I feared my father, I didn't love him and trust him. I never thought because I feared him that he was not a good father. As a matter of fact, sometimes I knew he was a bad father because I didn't fear him. As a matter of fact, much of my adolescence was spent despising my father because I feared my mother more than my father. And I praise God that my mother fought for me in those years. But my father was at his best as a father when he kicked me out of our home. It's my lifelong greatest lesson that my father gave me. Not the times when he showed me his love, which he did all the time, but the time when he kicked me out of the house. Because why? Because I was not, as he put it, honoring God. And so what did my dad do? My father chose at that moment, even though I was his next son after his previous sons had all died, 
three of them, my father chose at that moment what? To fear God and not to fear the loss of another son who he was giving over to drug-addled hippiedom. He knew my life was cheap at that moment. And he kicked me out of the house. And when I asked him for a security deposit for an apartment, I wasn't the kind of kid that was always asking for money. Guess what? He would not give it to me. <laughs> and if my dad were here today, I'd tell him that was his greatest act of love for me. So who do you fear? You fear your children won't like you as their friend? Uh, understand me, but how pathetic that you would fear your children won't like you, and so you rob them of the one thing that God has commanded you to give them beyond love, which you all give naturally, and that is you rob them of the discipline that shows them that they're loved. And guess what? Here's the truth. As they get older, they will despise you. The very thing that caused you to keep from disciplining them is the thing that will determine that they will not like you. And they'll go to a psychiatrist and fill page after page of his clinical notes saying how much they hate their father. And what did you do? All you did was want their friendship. And yet, if you will discipline them and not fear them, but fear him who has commanded that you discipline them, guess what? What's going to happen is God will give them to you as the delight of your life in your old age. They will be your friends. How much time a week do you spend on the phone with Heather? And this is a child that we were pretty hard on. So I ask you again, who do you fear? Who do you fear? Who do you fear? Who? You do live a life of fear. Fear is your, your motivation. It is your driving force. The, the Apostle Peter feared the circumcision. And so he despised the Gentiles who had been purchased with the same blood. And so what did Paul do? Well, Paul was afraid of confronting the first pope. Now, it's a joke. Paul went up against him and he said, you will not do that. He did it publicly. And guess what? When it was over, can you imagine how the Gentiles felt? Thank God there was one man left in this church who feared God. And so when it was all over, what happened? What happened was that the unity of the church was restored. And how was the unity restored? The unity was restored by conflict. By man-to-man, out in public, one won, the other lost. The very thing that America hates today. But think about this. If you study the ancient Roman Empire, what you'll find is the whole work they gave themselves to was trying to unite this unbelievably diverse set of cultures that they had conquered. And so they they never said no to any gods. They never said no to any values. Everything was inclusivity, just like today, right? And their conceit was that they were going to unite the known world of the time through their laws that never said no to anybody, right? And so what happens is, in the church of Jesus Christ, by the means of two men in public having out, you know, having it out aggressively, right? What happens? God is pleased to make the dividing wall crumble and to issue that clarion call of egalitarianism the likes of which the French Revolution never heard of. All right? In Christ, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And that's why it has only been in the Western Christian culture that we have had the rise of feminism. (laughs) Because nobody else even had the concept of there being neither male nor female, let alone slave or free. Did you see India getting rid of slavery? You know what ended the untouchable class in India? It was Christianity. And what about child prostitution? Who was it that went to India and ended child prostitution? Although it's probably still going on. Who was it that ended child labor? Who was it that brought hospitals back? Who was it that in the United States of America led the charge against slavery? It was biblical Christians who had read that verse in the book of Galatians and had seen that Jesus Christ brings unity to the body of Christ. And out of the church goes people whose whole lives have been changed. They no longer fear man. They're no longer living for the old guard. All right? They only fear one person, and therefore they have courage. They have the courage of William Lloyd Garrison to say no union with slaveholders. They have the courage of Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop to say no union with abortionists. They have the courage of, of Brian Bailey and, and Adam Spady who say no killing of old people. All right? We have the courage in this church to have wives who are honored as all the feminists become the husbands that they wish they could marry. Okay? And our women are bright. They are respected in their homes. They are queens at their table. And their children do not talk back to them. Okay? This is the fruit of the egalitarianism that's true. And the world can never match it. All they do is chatter about it. We don't give a rip what color you are, what sex you are, although it is true that women will not be able to preach here. And if you want to know how that comes out, (laughs) talk to me afterwards. I'll I'll preach on that too. All right. We don't have slave and free, Jew and Greek, male and female. We are all one in Christ. So I ask you, who are you going to fear? Who are you going to fear? It's a matter of great sorrow to me to see people turn from Jesus because they don't want to publicly be known as a sinner. You realize that the door to the cross is a door that is exceedingly small when it comes to human pride. Under the cross, everything's level. Everyone must come to the cross with their confession of sin. And there are many people who are scandalized by having to confess that they're sinners so that they can have the blood of Jesus. But look at what Jesus did. How could you look at that and then think about your own pride? How could you look at Jesus hanging naked on the cross, blood pouring out of his wounds, giving his life up, and he's perfect, and then be worried that you would have to publicly be baptized? Do you know how common that is? And why are you worried about being baptized? You know good and well why you're worried about being baptized because when you go up there, you confess that you are a sinner without hope except through the blood of Jesus Christ. You're confessing publicly you're a sinner. So what are you going to be afraid of? Having a few people in a church 
Tell other, their neighbors that you confess that you're a sinner or are you going to fear God who one day you will stand before and give an account for your life? Think of your, think of your pride. Think, think of what it causes you to fear. And think of those who join this church and publicly say, I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to redeem us. And they join the church and they have fellowship, all of us one with another at this table. And then what happens? Uh, they, they begin to, to fear that they look foolish to their neighbors. And they begin to engage in certain sins. And, and, and the sins get ingrained in their hearts so that it has a hold on them. And, and they have a few people come to them and they won't repent. And, and then they keep going in their sin until the point where their conscience and heart are seared. All right? and, and they no longer have the ability to repent that they used to have. It, it, it's grown very, very um, stretched and, and gnarly and, and, and brittle. All right? And then what happens? Then it's a matter that comes before the elders of the church. But no, they won't repent. Why? Because they fear how they will look publicly. I thought we all came through the cross. I thought we all admitted that we were sinners when we came. But no. There are Christians who, over a period of years, give themselves to sin and, again, are restored to the pride that they abandoned at the cross. And they fear being known publicly as sinners. And so what happens is they leave the church. They leave the church rather than to have it admitted again a second time that they are sinners. You know, the one thing that's different from this church than any other church in town? Hmm? Hint, hint. We always begin worship with a prayer of confession of sin. Give it up, people. You are a sinner. That's who you are. It's not what you do. It's who you are. And if you will admit that publicly, okay, if you'll admit that publicly and say, Jesus, I come. You come to the cross and you place your faith no longer in your own works, your circumcision, the old guard, any of that. You don't fear that. You only fear the one who will judge you by your response to his son and his work. If you will give up your fear of man and fear God, then it's all over. It just don't matter. And you'll spend the rest of your life being exposed as a sinner to your children, to your wife. But amazing, think of this. My children listen to me preach and grow spiritually. Oh, I must be a perfect man, right? No, they just know that they themselves have been forgiven and so they forgive me. Okay, I have to end, and I'm going to end with two scriptures that I want you to burn into your brain. First, Psalm 56.11, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? <laughs> I mean, you all love Bruce Willis when he says that. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand.
Isn't it nice to be done with fear? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the fear of God is pure. The fear of God is pure. Now this morning we are able, by the work of Christ, to come to this table and 